This is MIT Technology Review. You've probably got this notion in your head that if you live in China, there's no such thing as data privacy. The government spies on everything you do. Your data can be used to create a social credit score. That's like a measure of whether you're a good citizen. Now, during the coronavirus pandemic, you have to download an app called Health Code. It gives you a red, yellow, or green code based on your data, and it has to be green for you to get on a train, say, or enter a store. Many countries have data protection laws. In Europe, there's GDPR that lets people decide what data is collected and kept about them. Other countries and some US states have been adopting their own versions. And the common view is that in China, giant tech companies like Alibaba can basically collect as much data as they want, and people either don't care or can't do anything about it. But that's a misperception. The Chinese government does spy on people, and it is doing so more and more. But when it comes to how private companies use their data, Chinese citizens have actually been demanding more privacy. As a result, China's been developing a pretty sophisticated data protection framework. And during the pandemic, there's been a very healthy debate among Chinese citizens on social media about just how much data the authorities should be able to collect for the sake of public health and what they should be allowed to do with it. Today on the show, I'm talking to our senior artificial intelligence reporter, Karen Howe. Her story in the latest issue of MIT Technology Review, our techno-nationalism issue, really picks apart the common Western perceptions about how Chinese people think about data privacy. I'm Gideon Litchfield, Editor-in-Chief of MIT Technology Review, and this is Deep Tech. Life was supposed to be full of wonder and hope for 18-year-old Xu Yu She was just admitted to Nanjing University of Post and Telecommunications. However, one phone call put an end to her future. In the fall of 2016, in the coastal Chinese province of Shandong, a young woman named Xu Yu was celebrating her admission to college. Xu came from a poor family. Only her father worked and had a small income, and very few of Xu's relatives had ever been able to go to college. But her parents had painstakingly saved for her tuition, and Xu also applied for financial aid. And a few days later, she received a call saying she'd been awarded a scholarship. To collect the money, she first needed to deposit nearly 10,000 yuan, or $1,400, into an account connected to the university. She wired the funds to the given number, and that night, the family rushed to the police to report that they had been defrauded. In a later recounting of the story, Xu's father said his greatest regret was asking the police whether they might still recover their money. The answer, likely not, only exacerbated Xu's devastation. And on the way home, Xu, who was otherwise healthy, collapsed from a heart attack. She died in a hospital two days later. At a press conference, the director of the Department of Student Affairs at Nanjing University said a scholarship call to Xu had never been made. We didn't know about this until the media reported it. What we had was some basic information related to her performance in the college entrance exams. This doesn't include her family conditions. The call had instead come from scammers who'd paid off a hacker for her number, admission status, and her request for financial aid. 
For Chinese consumers who'd become all too familiar with their personal information being stolen, she became a symbol. Her case sparked a national outcry for greater data privacy protections. So, Karen, where did this idea come from that the Chinese just don't care about data privacy? Yeah, so I think there is a grain of truth in that. At one point, when comparing U.S. consumers with Chinese consumers, perhaps the U.S. consumers did care more than Chinese consumers. But I think part of that is because each country had their own respective cycles of technology development. So if you think about our cycle in the U.S., when we first started having tech companies and tech services, we were actually pretty happy with the idea of giving up some of our data privacy in exchange for that convenience. And it wasn't until tech giants became really big and powerful and we started having data breaches that we then realized data privacy is actually something we should care about and advocate for. So I think China is undergoing that same cycle right now. But for Western tech companies like Facebook, this belief that the Chinese don't really care about privacy has, has actually been kind of convenient, hasn't it? Oh, definitely. I think the most infamous example of this is in 2018, when Mark Zuckerberg testified to the Senate after the Cambridge Analytica scandal. But we still need to make it so that American companies can innovate in those areas, or else we're going to fall behind Chinese competitors and others around the world who have different... He's literally saying to regulators, don't clamp down on us too hard for privacy-invasive technologies like face recognition because American companies still need to innovate in these areas to outcompete Chinese companies. In July, the CEOs of Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook all gave testimony in the U.S. Senate. And we heard some of these themes come up again, didn't we? Yeah, again, Mark Zuckerberg, if you look at his written remarks, he said, don't regulate us too hard because we need to compete with Chinese companies. And these latest hearings weren't necessarily focused on data privacy this time, but this narrative continues that if the U.S. government is too hard on U.S. tech giants, they will be at a disadvantage because the Chinese government doesn't restrict Chinese tech giants at all in any regard. So, Karen, you've been to China on reporting trips. Have you had conversations with people there about data privacy? What sorts of things have you heard? Yeah, from my conversations with people who live in China, I think there's this growing sense of a loss of control. And honestly, I think the conversations are pretty similar to the ones that we have in the U.S. in that people are realizing and recognizing that their data is being used increasingly by tech giants in ways that they don't really understand. Like, in the U.S., we talk about how we often end up seeing ads that follow us around the internet after we search something on Google. And in China, that's what they're talking about, too. They use Baidu. That's their search engine. And they'll search something and suddenly have an ad pop up on a different app for the exact same thing. So they feel uncomfortable with that, just like we feel uncomfortable with that. And actually, it was Western companies that helped China construct this surveillance state, right? Yeah, I mean, at the time, China really didn't have very good technology infrastructure. So they actually had to rely on Western companies who had far more advanced technologies in this regard. So it was companies like American conglomerate Cisco, Finnish telecom giant Nokia, Canada's Nortel networks that were all enlisted to help work on different parts of the project. 
And so these companies, they helped build a nationwide database for storing information on all Chinese adults. And they developed a sophisticated system for controlling information flow on the internet, which would eventually become what we know as the Great Firewall. And conveniently, a lot of these technologies were basically standardized for state spying because the FBI had worked with the U.S. government to pass the Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act in 1994 to help with their spying. And so many of these companies had updated their systems based on this law and were now exporting these technologies to China to help build China's digital state surveillance system. So the infrastructure of China's surveillance state starts to get built in 2000, but the crackdown, the censorship, all of that really takes off after Xi Jinping becomes president in 2013. So how did that play out? When Xi Jinping came into power in 2013, one of the biggest things that he started doing is trying to update the censorship systems of the government to match the growth and the adoption of the internet. The internet at that point had given rise to social media platforms like WeChat and Weibo, and there was a flourishing of online activity and online public discourse that caused the censorship systems to lag behind. So in the fall of 2013, the party basically put their foot down. They were like, people have gotten too comfortable with saying whatever they want. Um, some of them have gotten too comfortable with criticizing and ridiculing the Chinese Communist Party. And they arrested hundreds of influential social media users for what they described as malicious rumor mongering. And then they paraded a particularly influential social media user on national TV. But now Chinese citizens are starting to demand more personal data privacy. How did that movement begin? I think it roughly started around 2016. So in that year, there was basically a series of very high profile cases where people had their personal data stolen and they were defrauded of significant amounts of money. One particular case, of course, is the tragic death of Xu Yuyu, which I spoke about earlier. And so when cases like hers happened, it provoked this huge anger among the Chinese public because they saw themselves in these people. There was actually a survey in 2016 by the Internet Society of China that found 84% of the people they'd surveyed had suffered some kind of data leak, whether that was their phone numbers, their addresses, their bank account details. So this was getting increasingly concerning because the services that people were using we're starting to collect more and more personal intimate data, more quantities of data. And that's when there became this push from the public to really start caring about data privacy. I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn that China now has a data protection standard not entirely unlike Europe's GDPR. And it's in fact more comprehensive than what the US has at a national level. Is this GDPR with Chinese characteristics, is it enforced? Yeah, so one of the reasons why China's data privacy regime now looks kind of like GDPR is because they were actually looking at GDPR. The committee that was tasked with fleshing out China's approach to data privacy, they basically scoured the world for legal documents that had already been written 
to approach this problem. And they translated all of them into Chinese. So they translated GDPR, they translated California Consumer Privacy Act, they translated the OECD Privacy Guidelines and a bunch of other things. And then they studied the articles and the language to figure out what they wanted to transplant and what they wanted to modify into the Chinese context. The product of this was the Personal Information Protection Specification, which is not a law, but a series of recommendations around the handling and processing of data. So it can actually be enforced. Um, But there is a law on its way. So right now, the National People's Congress, China's top legislative body, is in the process of drafting and expects to quickly pass the Personal Information Protection Law. Okay, so there is this Personal Information Protection Law that's designed to protect consumers. But will it limit the state's ability to spy on people too? In theory, the law is supposed to apply to any entity that collects data. So it's not actually just for private actors. But then this goes back again to the question of enforcement. Is there actually any incentive for the government to enforce itself and restrict its own data collection operations? That's a thing that China scholars have been puzzling over for a really long time. So here we are. It's late 2019, 2020. There's this uneasy balance between state surveillance and increasingly strong consumer data protection. And now along comes COVID-19. So what happened then? COVID-19 is a really interesting moment for data privacy in China. I think the reason why the uneasy balance was able to exist for so long is because Chinese citizens don't actually know how much data is being collected from them by the government. But when COVID-19 hit, the government launched this health code app initiative with the help of Chinese tech giants, where different local government authorities released these apps that required citizens to input their data about where they traveled to, what kinds of symptoms they were experiencing. And then the app would spit out this color code based on their risk of infection. So if you're likely not infected, you get a green color code. And you can actually go about your day-to-day life, like go buy food, go to a cafe, go to a bookstore, board the subway. But if you might be infected, you get a yellow or red code, and then you have to quarantine in your home immediately. So this is the first time, really, that we've seen an instance where there's actually a somewhat centralized digital platform that is successfully collecting data on so many citizens. It's basically mandatory to have it if you want to be able to move about the world. But at the same time, it's also the first time that Chinese citizens are seeing the government collect this data at such a huge scale. So in one sense, there's been this huge leap in the capability of the government to collect this kind of data that it's always wanted to collect But there's also been this huge leap forward in citizen awareness of this data collection happening, and that's made them anxious, and they've started to push back. So do you think now that the momentum towards tougher privacy laws in China is building and is going to continue? I actually asked that same question to Sam Sachs, who's a China scholar at New America and Yale. She's been studying this for quite a while and says, to answer that question, you have to look at the objectives of the Chinese leadership. 
you have national security objectives, you have economic objectives. Clearly, overreach in terms of government use and access of private data helps national security goals, but it could very much undermine economic goals. This is a government that has talked about building China into a quote-unquote cyber superpower. And part of that vision is having globally successful, competitive Chinese brands like Huawei, like TikTok, right? But she says those brands aren't going to be viable in overseas markets if there's suspicion about the way that data is accessed by the Chinese government. And so that's where, if we were to take a sort of pessimistic stance, I'd say, look, one, why would the government rein in its own ability to access the data? And I'm sort of looking for indication that this is a government that has economic pragmatic interests at heart, but we're seeing sort of the predominance of the security side. And not to play political relativism here, but I will say that we are also in the United States seeing a more national security focused dominant view when it comes to looking at technology and global supply chains. So, Karen, we've been talking about how China thinks about data privacy and how it regulates data. But how exactly is this going to influence the rest of the world? Well, I think there are two big ways. First of all, Chinese tech giants are increasingly having a global footprint. And when we use these services, it's really important for us to know what data is collected, how it's processed, and who gets access. That's the whole crux of the fight that's happening right now with TikTok. The app is owned and developed by the Chinese company ByteDance. And people are worried that this means the Chinese government will get access to all its user data. Our lack of understanding around how TikTok handles its data is being used as grounds for its potential ban in the U.S. And that could result in a less free internet. So I think that's number one. Number two is it's not just about Chinese tech companies. The way that data privacy legislation develops around the world is very much connected. When the EU released GDPR, China was not the only one watching. There were a number of countries around the world that started adopting very similar models. Brazil, for example. China's data privacy law is going to have a very similar impact. They're essentially proposing a new model to the world of how countries can have strong consumer protections without limiting state surveillance. And I think that's going to be a very persuasive and appealing proposition to a lot of countries around the world. That's it for this episode of Deep Tech. This is a podcast just for subscribers of MIT Technology Review to bring alive the issues our journalists are thinking and writing about. You'll find Karen Howe's article, China's Data Privacy Paradox, in the September issue of the magazine. Deep Tech is written and produced by Anthony Green and edited by Jennifer Strong and Michael Riley. Our technical director is Jacob Borsky, and I'm Gideon Litchfield. Thanks for listening. This is MIT Technology Review.